Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. You're not going to understand what it is to be an American until we understand our history. And history didn't start with the pilgrims at Plymouth in 1621. But I want more broadly people to understand that Native American history is American history and we're going to teach it as such. That was Governor Nedelman applauding the collaboration between the State Department of Education and Connecticut's five sovereign tribal nations. They're working together to meet a legislative mandate that calls for Native American curriculum for K-12 social studies classes. When you learned about Native American history in school, chances are it didn't touch on this region and its unique tribes. Resources with localized information from the tribal nations themselves are expected to be available in January 2024. Coming up, we'll hear from the Mohegan Tribal Nation about one resource for teachers and homeschoolers that's already up and running. But joining me now first on Zoom is Darlene Kasich, Education Co- Coordinator with the Institute of American Indian Studies and a traditional Native American storyteller with the Satacoke Tribal Nation. Thanks, Darlene, for joining us. Hello. Good morning. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Darlene, can you start by first telling us a little bit about your role at the Institute and the work you do with classes to help people better understand local Native American history? For the past 45 years, our museum has run education programs for local schools. It's been an asset to teachers because they often don't know how to teach this history. And while the teachers are there, they're also learning. Um, For example, many teachers don't realize that indigenous people have been here in this area for over 12,000 years. So what we teach is that history um, of this area, you know, beginning with the Native American people, it makes sense to start there. And we talk about the changes over time that indigenous people made based on changes in climate, new technologies, and then the um, introduction of new cultures. And when I feel that when you teach children about Native American people and their beliefs, you know, what their worldviews were, what their priorities were, they could better understand the conflicts that come up later on when you're talking about historical events. Because, you know, the the two cultures were so different on how they viewed land and resources and so on. I mean, you just blew my mind with 12,000 years. <laughs> That's a lot of years. And um, and as we all know, this is complicated, right? And I believe oftentimes Native American history is taught as a mono, as a monolithic and often conflating with um, what are now more than nearly 600 federally recognized tribes. And I also think it's taught sort of frozen in time, a thing of the past. How do you bridge these knowledge gaps for students and especially now, more importantly, for teachers? 
Well, that's it. Most important for us is to not only talk about the past, the past 12,000 years, but bringing it all the way up to present day. Um, when I do an education program and I introduce myself as a Scaticote, you know, uh, someone from one of the five tribes here in Connecticut, children are often very surprised because they expect to see something different. Everything they've been exposed to has been in the past, Native American people in deerskin clothing and so on. For them to see someone, you know, in sneakers and jeans and, you know, a flannel shirt is kind of surprising to them. So one of the ways that I explain it to them is that Native American people often dress differently for celebrations and such, much like they do. If a child was in a wedding ceremony, they might wear, you know, um, a flower girl dress, you know, dropping rose petals down the aisle, right? Um, a boy might be wearing a tuxedo as the ring bearer. They're dressed differently because they're part of a cultural ceremony, a wedding ceremony. Well, we dress differently when we're part of ceremony as well. And I explain the regalia that we wear. But in our everyday lives, we don't wear our regalia to stop and shop, right? Um, those are only for special occasions. And when you connect it to their own lives and their own, you know, um, traditions and such, they can understand it better. Um, you know, we're often asked, you know, do you live in a wigwam? No, I live in a regular house with cable TV, electricity, internet, all the same things that, you know, the children have in their own homes. So it, it humanizes us. It takes us from the past into the present day. We, you know, think that this is a very important part of history as well, is talking about the present day. And we, you know, often talk about different famous people that they didn't realize were indigenous. Um, that often comes to them as a surprise as well. I don't know. Um, going to Stop and Shop is a special occasion for me for leaving the house. So <laughs> I think the idea of wearing regalia to Stop and Shop is is a pretty sweet idea to me. <laughs> um, but I think what you just shared, it, it cross cultures too. I, I think there's a lot of culture around the globe that, that shares that same concept of wearing regalia, cultural regalia during their you know special occasions. And so the fact, you know, you grew up in Connecticut or you grew up in Connecticut schools. How does that experience inform your work? It's the driving factor of what I do. My experience is, I'm 63. My experience is growing up and learning about Native American people only in November. You know, <laughs> like we learn about how America was discovered. And then, oh, by the way, in November, there were some people here. Like it didn't make sense to me. And what they were teaching me was inaccurate. Um, and most of what they were teaching me were about tribes in the plains. And I was confused. It was like, we have tribes right here. Why aren't we talking about them? You know, this is our history. Why are we learning about, you know, the plains? So it's really important to me that we talk about things truthfully and honestly. The way that I was talk, uh, taught about Thanksgiving was the really, what is what really um, changed my, my views on school because much of what they were teaching me was inaccurate. The photographs that they were showing me or the, the paintings and prints didn't depict the native people here. So I would raise my hand and I would say, I'm sorry, but they didn't wear that kind of headdress. And I would get in trouble for it and sent to the principal. So 
it made me distrust what my teachers were telling me because if they were teaching me history that I knew was wrong, how do I know what, what other things they're teaching me, you know, whether those things are accurate or not. So it really tainted my view of education. And I don't, I don't really want children today, you know, native children today to go through that same experience. I, I think it's important that their their histories are honored and talked about and discussed. I think that's a, an amazing sort of experience. Even as a young student, I just can't imagine thinking through that at that age. And so, you know, we talked about uh, history sort of frozen in time, and you just mentioned that you were being taught inaccurate information. What are some other common misconceptions that you're finding yourself having to clear up? Oh, so there are so many. Um, we start with asking the children, you know, what do you know about Native American people? And what they know in the beginning of our program, you know, is very little and it's very stereotypical. At the end of the program, we ask, what have you learned? And we realize that we've opened up their minds and gotten rid of many of those myths and stereotypes, you know, um, that they had in their minds. and you can't blame them. It's the resources and information that they've been given. It's the images that they see. I have a story about my son when he was eight years old. We went to a museum here in Connecticut and he saw a stone ax in a case and it said, this is primitive technology was over the top of it. This is an ax used by native people to chop down a tree. So my son looks at that, he sees the primitive technology and he says, Mom, my ancestors weren't very bright. You would have to hit a tree forever to chop it down with that dull stone axe. And I realized that he was still being taught, you know, from one point of view. So I took him home and I showed him how Native people chopped a tree down. We set a fire down at the roots. We painted an area with clay so that it wouldn't burn about two feet high up from the ground. And he learned that it's the fire that was cutting down the tree, not really that stone axe. That stone axe was just helping that tree fall down. And it totally changed his view of his ancestors and their intelligence. He was like, wow, that's brilliant. And then when I explained to him how that's how they made dugout canoes as well, by using fire, it changed his whole perspective. So I think we need to get rid of some of that imagery and wording that's out there now. Native people weren't primitive, you know, in the way they did things. They just did things differently. Well, just by you sharing that story with us, I I have a different view now with how those are those uh, tools are are used. And so, you know, with your constant experience with this and sharing stories and and helping people understand the culture, are there specific cultures of indigenous people that you like to share? I like to talk about how they view the land and the resources and how different that was from the way the colonists viewed land. For example, in our language, there was no word for owning land because that was a concept that didn't exist. You were just borrowing land from future generations. So the way they interacted with the land was differently. They respectfully harvest to this day, respectfully harvest, you know, plants, animals and such. They only take what they need and they utilize every bit of what they take. So nothing is wasted. 
And that's a message that, you know, everyone can learn from, you know, how to interact with this world a little bit differently, only taking what you need. Um, we try to have the children connect things that they have with where they come from because they're missing that important step. Um, they don't realize where certain things come from. For example, leather, right? We talk about the tanning process, how Native American people, you know, took a deer hide, scraped off the fur, becomes a raw hide, added an acid and an oil to soften it up to become a leather that you could wear. But they don't realize that that process is still being used today for the leather shoes they're wearing, the leather belts they're wearing. So it opens up their mind to that technology and how it wasn't so primitive. I actually remember as a reporter in California that I witnessed um, a Chumash uh, Indian do that in front of me, not from start to finish, but for parts of it. And it did help me appreciate how, you know, our goods, where where does it come from? And so, you know, as a part of this conversation and, and you being involved in the statewide effort to include and to distinguish the five sovereign Connecticut tribes and social studies classes, can you touch on why that is so important and also to speak to Scattercoke traditions specifically. I think it's really important that students understand who the people were in the area where they live. We have this wonderful map that shows all the tribes that were here, the territories that were here in 1620 at time of contact. And they love looking up like where their town is. Who were the people that, you know, lived where they live now? Um, I think that's an important, um, something important for them to know that, you know, there were people here before, you know, settlement happened and that, um, you know, those territories are no longer there now, but there are re remnants of those tribes in the five tribes that we have today. And we know this work is still in the early stages, but what can you tell us about your involvement and hopes for resources? I am so excited to hear that there's going to be changes made to the curriculum. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, it's something that touches on all the grades and it could be taught in different subjects besides just history. Um, it can go into the sciences. It can go into the arts. It can go into music and such. Um, there's so many ways that we could bring in indigenous histories and culture um, into the classroom that, you know, I'm really excited to see how this is going to turn out. I think it's important that all five tribes have representatives to make sure that their stories are being told accurately. And that's not an easy feat. And that's why I understand that they're not going to roll this out until 2024, because it takes time to get all these tribes together. Um, and I think it's long overdue where tribes, you know, the five tribes here work together for a common cause. Well, joining us now is someone who can help us unpack more of the process and the collaboration is Steve Armstrong, social studies consultant for the Connecticut State of uh, Education. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thank you, Catherine. Great to be here. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Leave where we live, in fact. Uh, Steve, can you first remind us of the timeline here? This was a curriculum mandated for the fall of next year, but now it's rolling out January 2024 instead. 
Yeah, well, what it's doing, um, Catherine, just so, just so folks can understand, this comes from actually two different bits of legislation, two pieces of legislation. There is a part of this one piece of legislation says that starting next fall, that all secondary schools must include the study of Native Americans, including the five tribes, somewhere in the in the curriculum. So we want to get we want to start to get curriculum materials out to teachers and to schools for the fall in the secondary school. And then in January 24, there's going to be model curriculum created for grades K to eight. And that's where the piece for the younger folks will be for the elementary school kids will be. So for next fall, we want to get we, we want to make sure every secondary every district in Connecticut in their secondary school is teaching this. And then for January of, tw- of 2024, that's when the model curriculum rolls out. And the five Connecticut tribal nations, these are the Eastern Pequot, Mashantucket Pequot, Mohegan, Scaticoke, and Golden Hill, Pagusset. What do these conversations look like with the tribal nations and educators? Are you holding focus groups, community conversations? Help us paint a picture. Yeah, we, we, we started, we had a focus group, and we will have more focus groups with both and, and and I think to start it off, I was speaking to um, Irene Parisi, our chief academic officer, yesterday. And I think the first thing is, I mean, we we provide some sort of, you know, some sort of structure for this. But I think from our perspective, the people that really have to be leading this are representatives of the five tribes. So what we're going to do is send out, we're going to ask each tribe to send one or two individuals to be a steering committee and to sort of direct this project. Because I think in any project like this, the group, these are the folks that really have to direct the content and we'll bring some teachers in to do some like, you know, instructional materials. Here's the best way to teach this. But I think the content of this is going to come largely from the tribes themselves. And can you respond to what Darlene has said as far as knowledge gaps that teachers may have and the kinds of resources being made available? Yeah, what we want to do is, and, and, and there's, don't think, by the way, and, and, and there's, there's materials out there, but I don't think that there's, the, in many cases, the teachers are at, at the point that Darlene made about studying the different tribes. I think there's this monolithic thing Uh, that many teachers think, and no fault of their own because they haven't been provided with any more up-to-date materials. But I think many teachers sort of give the story of, here's what it was like to be a Native American in Connecticut. But I think the beauty of this project will be some of that, but will also include, here's the story of each of the tribes. If this tribe is in your part of the state, here's their story. If the Mohegans are here, here's their story. I think that's the part of this that's that. And I'm, again, not being negative to teachers, but I think few teachers know about. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. We heard from Darlene Kasich, education coordinator with the Institute of American Indian Studies and a traditional Native American storyteller with the Skatico Tribal Nation. Darlene, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Steve Armstrong with the State Department of Education will stay with us. Coming up, the Mohegan Tribal Nation has already unveiled a resource for Connecticut classes. We'll hear from their director of curriculum and instruction. 
You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're, giving, we're getting a glimpse into the collaboration between Connecticut tribal nations and the State Department of Education, working together to localize content and elevate the voices of the tribes where we live. Let's listen to Beth Ragen, a member of the Mohegan Tribe Tribal Nations Council of Elders at a recent press conference celebrating the collaboration. Now all Connecticut students can learn about our roots through the voices of our people, not through the colonizer's voice, but through the voices that have been left out to tell our true, tragic, yet also very wonderful history in many ways, our culture and our ways. Joining me now on Zoom is Sanjali Vatondro, Director of Curriculum and Instruction for the Mohegan Tribal Nation. Thanks, Sam, for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Sam, tell us about your role as Director of Curriculum and Instruction. What do you do? Sure thing. I just started this position in March. Um, My position was new to the Mohegan Tribe. So as Director of Curriculum and Instruction, I write curriculum for the Mohegan Tribe, um, and I base my curriculum... um, units and lesson planning on K-12 Connecticut state standards. Um, And I write hands-on engaging lessons to help educators across the state um, speak the story through an Indigenous perspective. I also work with schools across the state. Um, I run professional development sessions free of charge with teachers. to help them gain perspective, help provide them resources, um, and to get our Indigenous story out there. And tell us, tell us more about your work with Beth Regan, the voice we just heard. Sure, yeah. Beth Regan, she is the vice chairwoman of our Council of Elders. Um, she's also my Mohegan elder. Um, she is a retired social studies history um, Native American studies teacher um, of 35 years, and she has a lot of education experience 
um, in the middle school, high school level. I have a lot of experience in the elementary school level. Um, Prior to my position now, I was a fourth grade teacher in the public school setting. Um, And together we work on creating lesson plans and curriculum. Um, We're able to work together with our skills through a K through 12 lens. Um, And she, she's a brilliant um, speaker, a brilliant person and has such great ideas. And I'm so proud of how she spoke um, for our people and for our native nations at the governor's press press conference last week. Uh, Tell us about the educators project that you're working on with the Mohegan tribal nation. Sure, I would love to. Um, If you go on our website, mohegan.nsn.us, our educators project is located there. It is password protected, but my email is right there. So you can email me to gain access. Um, The Mohegan tribe created the educators project to provide homeschoolers and to provide any educators looking for resources um, to teach about Native American studies but mostly about the Mohegan tribe at this time. Um, We have so much to share about our history, past, present, and into the future. And this is a place where we can virtually, literally virtually, um, share with educators across our state. And how has um, educators or students been responding to that if they had a chance to? Yeah, when I go to schools and I work with teachers for professional development, I help walk them through a couple things. Um, We talk about what is identity for Native Americans? um, What is, how do we use a language of respect? What is a best practice? Um, And I suggest that educators use um, the names of Native nations if possible. For example, the Mohegan tribe, the Nipmuc tribe, the Skadikok tribe. Um, And as I work with teachers and have these conversations with them, they're able to learn in such a deeper level than they've ever learned before. And then I guide them to our educators project where they can um, have resources to use on their own in their classroom. Um, Educators have for a long time now been lacking the resources, lacking understanding. Um, And it's certainly time for us as tribal nations and as the state of Connecticut um, to help support them to teach this important topic. And I just want to clarify that this is not tied to the state's work on Native American curriculum, but it will still inform that collaboration, right? It will, yes. Um, As the Director of Curriculum and Instruction, I'm working with um, Steve Armstrong um, and the Connecticut State Department of Education through this endeavor. I am going to help them with curriculum development and using our educators project and some of the resources that we have already created um, will be a part of providing resources. The educators project too is constantly growing. Um, It's our goal to add lessons and units of study every month um, because there's, there's so much to put on there. Currently now I'm working on a unit called the Mohegan village a day in the life And I'm working on that purposely because when I was a fourth grade teacher, I was required to teach the regions of the United States at a deeper level. And I was also required to teach Native American peoples. But it was so much to teach in a short period of time. And when you Google, you know, Native Americans of the Eastern Woodlands, there's a lot of misrepresentation um, online and a lot of 
misleading information as well. And I wanted to provide for teachers a resource so they can go with their students and learn about how did the Mohegan tribe live in the 1600s? What did a Mohegan village look like? And giving photographs and resources for teachers um, in an accurate way. Um, we have other resources on there too, teaching about the Mohegan tribe today. Um, and a lot of our leaders, um, for example, our chief Lynn Malerba is a U.S. treasurer. Um, and I'm so proud of her and proud of our nation for sharing that. Um, we just have so much to share and I want to be a part of helping educators with this. I was just going to say it was mentioned earlier that there's 12,000 years of indigenous people history. I can't imagine trying to pack that all in into a curriculum. So kudos to what you're doing. And, Thank you. and it sounds like there's a grant opportunity that you connect teachers with. Yes. So as well as our educators project online, free of charge, you just have to email for access first. We also have a Mohegan Challenge grant. You can email me about that as well. Um, and what we do in the Mohegan tribe, our, our goal is to educate our community and our goal is to give to the people around us. Um, and our challenge grant is free. Um, you apply, you explain to us in your classroom, you want to start a unit or you want to do a project to teach about indigenous studies. Tell us, how would you like to do that? What resources do you need? How can we help you? And if you're accepted for our challenge grant, your classroom will receive $1,000. Your classroom will receive an in-reach visit to our Tantaquidgen Museum. And you will also receive a free outreach program to your school where our outreach specialists um, teach classes about regalia, dance, um, tradition, um, storytelling. And we like to um, provide this grant every year to continue to connect our Connecticut students. Um, so the deadline for that grant is December 10th. So just in a couple of days, but it's not too late to apply. So go to our Mohegan website, um, reach out to me and I can help you apply for that if you're a K to 12 teacher. Well, perfect timing that we're having this conversation. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then also to remind our listeners that uh, there's also a link to the Educators Project and the Mohegan Challenge Grant at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And um, so we just heard from Darlene with the Skatico Tribe Nation yeah. about the many misperceptions she helps clear up about Native American history. What sort of script flipping do you find yourself having to do most when you're having these chats with teachers? Yeah. So first I want to comment on Darlene. She spoke really well about her indigenous people and how she spoke about land and how we have to sustain our land. We have to educate our younger students to take care of the land and be stewards of the land. And if we sustain it, you know, land gives us life and teaching through a lens of land and, and appreciating our community and appreciating our and appreciating our people. And that is something that Darlene and I have in common. Um, so working together as tribal nations to create this curriculum, Native nations can truly gain a voice. Um, we have such a huge opportunity to change the script, right? And to educate students and to educate educators statewide. Um, a, I guess a misleading effort that I'm trying to help with is when I grew up, um, I was taught about Thanksgiving in not an accurate way. Um, and when I became an adult and I became a teacher, I wanted to teach about the true Thanksgiving. And I wanted to teach about Columbus and colonists 
in a respectful, but more accurate way. And I was able to do that at the fourth grade level. Um, you know, you can't, you can't disclose all of the tragedy and all of the challenges um, to students really young, but you can start doing it. You don't, you don't have to teach in such a, um, I guess, a sprinkly way of making everything good and great. Um, we can teach the accurate history in multiple perspectives, the colonizer side and the indigenous side. Um, so when I work with teachers, I have this conversation about, okay, when we were kids, this is what we were taught, but now let's learn together. Let's grow together because I certainly don't blame my teachers for having a lack of understanding. I do think that if we provide better resources, if we provide better perspectives, we can teach our students from the bottom up um, and we can educate through an indigenous perspective as well um, for future generations. Well, thanks for sharing about what you learned when you were in Connecticut schools and what you can do now. Because I yeah. wanted to ask you, too, you know, how does this help inform the work that you're doing now, knowing what's missing? And I, I think Thanksgiving tends to be the, the big portion, naturally. But what are other things that you want to touch on or have touched on? Um, I want to touch on involvement and perspective in tribal nations today. I want to provide resources to educators to talk about hot topics in Native nations. Um, I want to teach that, just as Dar Darlene stated too, we can teach about Native nations more than once a year, more than twice a year, more than just October and November. Um, and if we find appropriate places to integrate this curriculum, K to 12, it can be taught in every grade in various content areas. Um, and we can, we can do it to, to change the script and to uplift and engage students. Um, I think the more we provide students, the more perspectives we provide, the deeper the understanding and the deeper the curiosity of students will become. Um, we can give so much to students and they can ask as many questions as they want and they can gain their own perspectives and opinions from what we provide to them. But we have to provide them multiple perspectives and many resources. I mean, I'm already learning so much just by having this short conversation. I cannot imagine having that in an actual curriculum. Um, I want to ask, we have a couple minutes left, but I want to ask yeah. still, you know, why is it so important to hear from the Mohegan Tribal Nation on their terms? Sure. Um, I think it's important to hear from all five of the sovereign nations, of course. Um, I think I'm most excited to be a part of this project so that all five nations can work together to educate our state. Um, I was truly excited to connect to Darlene actually a few months ago over technology. Um, and here we are over technology again, but by providing tribal nations with the opportunity to get involved in education and providing us with opportunities to write our own script, um, truly what I'm what I'm the most excited about. Um, Mohegan is about educating. We're about our community and we want to help the state as a whole. So really quickly, this will be a test on your author list. We got a note from John in Westbrook asking if there are any books you can recommend on real Connecticut Native American history. That's a good question. Um, when I do PD, I provide actually resources for websites that I suggest. I suggest finding books that are written by Native authors. 
I suggest going to websites such as American Indian Library Association. I suggest going to, I'm looking at my other screen right now because I did not write these down for you prior, but totally okay. I suggest going to American Indians in Children's Literature. That is a website that is run partially by Debbie Reese. Um, And what she does as a Native person, she has a blog and she talks about highly recommended Native books. She talks about why books are great, why books are not great. And she teaches educators how to vet their sources. Um, Vetting your sources is very important. Making sure there's historic accuracy, making sure the perspective is appropriate. Because unfortunately, when I was younger, I grew up with a lot of books that were written from the colonizer's perspective. And does that truly give an Indigenous perspective when I'm learning about Indigenous people? Probably not. So working with Debbie Reese and um, using resources online is where I would start. I do not have any you know, top five books on the top of my list for you right now, only because a lot of books are grade level specific, um, subject area specific. So he can totally go to the website, find my email um, and email me away and I can help him further. Well, thanks for not having a list because my to be read list is already too long and massive gold (laughs) stars for you pivoting to that. I just (laughs) want to let our listeners know, too, we'll add some of those resources to our website at cdpublic.org slash where we live. Uh, from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Catherine Shen. That was Sam Chaliva Tondro, Director of Curriculum and Instruction for the Mohegan Tribal Nation. Sam, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. After a quick break, we'll learn from where the Native American curriculum mandate fits into a larger overhaul of the state's social studies standards. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Jumping right back into the discussion is Steve Armstrong, social studies consultant for the Connecticut State Department of Education. Just a reminder that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Steve, uh, these resources were required to be created, but districts aren't required to use it. What are your senses of what teachers want and what do you think will be widely used once this is released? You know, um, you know, uh, Catherine, there's two approaches to this and both of them, I think, are effective. Last year or starting this year, all high schools in Connecticut are teaching African-American Latino history. And the the legislation on that said that every district had to offer that course as an elective course. So that's one approach. But I think, to be honest with you, an equally effective approach is what's being used here. And I think Sam alluded to it, is let's create curriculum materials that people, that teachers can place into pre-existing curriculums. In other words, let's find the right place in a US history course in middle school, high school, or elementary school, where we can put a Native American unit or a Native American lesson 
or use a Native American resource. Let's put it in the existing curriculum. Because I think using that approach, all kids will get it rather than the kids, just the kids taking the elective course. Both of them are effective, but I'm, I'm really happy that Sam uh, spoke for, you know, finding the right places and putting it into the existing curriculum. And Sam and Darlene are both still on the line. I'm wondering if one of you would like to react to what Steve said in terms of using the existing curriculum as a building block and continue to improve it, I may say. I would love to, Catherine. Go for it. Um, with all of the changes going on with the school systems right now, um, you know, pandemic and need for a social emotional learning curriculum. And there's so much going on. I think that educators are a little overwhelmed with the amount of change. And I think that we also have to focus on that. We also have to focus on what's going on in the world. Um, I think that by integrating topics into what districts already have created is probably the first way to start. But I also believe there needs to be a, a scope and sequence within that district within K to 12 so that a third grader isn't learning the same thing as a sixth grader who isn't learning the same thing as an eighth grader. And also to what Steve said, making sure that you're still learning indigenous studies without taking that specific course. Um, all of it's really important work. And so this statutory curriculum was part of an implemented bill last legislative session that also required um, or it also included requirements around Asian and Asian American Pacific Islander studies, LGBTQ studies and more. And like Steve mentioned earlier, uh, the Black and Latino Studies High School course rolled out statewide this year. And there's also a social studies standards overhaul on top of all of this. Um, Steve, can you tell us why this standards component is crucial and what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I think what, what we have frameworks, I think we're moving towards standards because we, the standards are a little more specific in what they ask teachers and schools to do. There's more specific recommendations on content. I think there's in this period where, you know, we have a lot of new teachers right now in Connecticut for various reasons. We have new administrators. I think w the more we can help them, the more we can offer supports and here's where to go. And so they don't have to figure that all out. I think we're helping social studies teachers. Plus in this era where social studies is regrettably under attack in some places, and in, even in some towns in Connecticut, I've heard from many teachers that they'd like a document that clearly outlines what good social studies teaching is to support them in their work. So they can go back and say, look, I'm doing this in my classroom. I'm having rigorous discussions on issues. I'm looking at multiple perspectives. I think if, the, if a standards document supports that, that puts them on a, lot of, a more solid ground as well. And you mentioned a robust uh, structure. You know, when we think about the debates around what is and isn't being taught in schools nationally and here in Connecticut, can you talk about why it, it's so critical to provide teachers with clear and robust resources? Yeah, because I, I think right now, I, I mean, there's a couple ways to answer that. But I think teachers, um, you know, on a lot of issues, teachers, there's more uncertainty about what they should be teaching. Regrettably, Catherine, there's some teachers, I've heard of cases of self-censorship that, wow, I don't know what I should say about slavery. 
wow, I don't know what I should say about the black experience in the 20th century or something like that. So I'll be, go back again. If we can give them in a standards document more specifics on what's good, and this is not just, we're just not thinking this off the top of our head. This is research stuff on what's good. I think that'll help teachers. Plus, the other tough thing, and, and Sam and, and, and Darlene both talked about this, is there, you know, to accurately depict the past, there's a lot of misconceptions that teachers in their own classes when they were in college or whatever were taught. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions on this class about history, both in this topic and in the topic of Pacific Americans and the topic of Black Americans. There's a lot of misconceptions that we have to try to, to help teachers not find the truth on, but to give them materials, primary sources, so they can help their students find the truth. And Darlene, you know, oh, oh, sorry, continue. No, I think the trend would be more, you know, rather than the approach that I had and perhaps you had of, of a teacher standing at the front of the room, you know, telling the kids what the truth is. Let's use an approach where we give students primary, those same primary sources and help them, let them wrestle with what's the truth. We have I think that's an approach that, that is, I, I have found incredibly effective and, and a ton of teachers in Connecticut are doing that. Sounds like a long process. And I wanted to bring in Darlene back just real quick um, to respond to what Steve just said. Darlene, are you still I there? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I think teachers need help. That's why they come to us often, is they're not sure what resources they should use. Are they using the correct information? Are they recommending reading for their students that, you know, are good choices? So I think, I, I think that, you know, providing them with the tools they need to teach this topic is essential. Um, and showing them different perspectives is also important. We shouldn't teach children what to think. We should teach them how to think. And if you show them two sides, you know, how one side viewed a certain situation and how another side viewed a certain situation, they come to their own conclusions instead of being told what to think. Um, something else I wanted to add is there are a lot of school mascot issues going on in the state of Connecticut. And, you know, it could be a very touchy topic for some. I find that if students are taught that Native American people are still here today, they think differently about their behaviors around that mascot. Um, you know, if we're just taught, you know, if they're just taught that we existed in the past and, um, you know, we're all gone, you know, last of the Mohegans kind of a thing. Um, you know, their actions that they do, they feel like they're not hurting anybody. But when they realize that there's indigenous people here today and that some may be in their own classroom, in their own school, you know, they think a little bit differently. So I think it's essential that we teach this in all grades. That was Steve Armstrong, Social Studies Advisor for Connecticut State Department of Education. You're also hearing members of the Bastion Pequot Tribal Nation playing an honor song at a recent press conference. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. 
Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thanks so much for listening. Yeah, I, uh...